The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. I just have to say, too, that uh, uh, a personal note of gratitude as I sit here. It's, this is my second or third time sitting in this room now. And I just think of, of all, the, all of you who participated in the painting and the cleaning and the building and the donating and everything you did to make this space available. So um, just a, a, a really heartfelt appreciation for the, the home that we've all built together and that we're able to be here together and uh, share this evening with Rebecca. I want to just say a few words about Rebecca, since Mark's uh, sent me this great little bio here. I thought I'd better read it. Uh, and we're really honored to have Rebecca. She is, as many of you know, a Minnesota native. So she's come back to her roots, so to speak, to be here with us this evening. She uh, is the guiding teacher at Insight Meditation Center in Pioneer Valley in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Many of you also know Rebecca, and some of you, I think, have studied with her uh, and when she has led retreats at the Insight Meditation Center in Gary, Massachusetts. Um, she's also a psychotherapist and uh, the Buddhist advisor at Mount uh, Hollyhock College. And her teaching emphasizes love, gentleness, and balance as we open to the full range of life's experiences. So we're just thrilled and very happy to have you here this evening. Thank you. And uh, without any further ado, I'm going to turn this over to you. So welcome, Rebecca. Thanks. So I flew in this afternoon, and I always love to come to Minnesota. There's something about, it's like your body knows when you've gone out to some place and you go back to it. I don't know if other of you have that experience, but it's like I feel, um, it's like my blood knows that it's home or something and it gets really happy. So <laughs> it's great to be here in Minneapolis with you all. And I usually like to come sit with you too, um, but I met my two one-year-old nieces for the first time and they took precedence over sitting, <laughs> spending a little time with them. So glad to be here now. So tonight I'd like to talk about the quality of patience. I think it's interesting to consider sometimes how we measure our practice. Um, we're always told not to, but we do anyway. So we have different ways that we think about our practice and like, is my practice good or is my practice going somewhere? Or am I getting something out of my practice? And Sometimes we have kind of strange criteria for figuring that out. Like we might, you know, think like how long we can stay on the breath or something, and then that'll be how we judge our practice, or um, whether we have strange exotic experiences, um, or whether we can sit longer or shorter, things like that. And when you think about it, those don't really make sense as ways to judge our practice, even though we might do that. One way that I like to think about practice, if we're going to, if we're going to judge our practice anyway, what's like a more realistic or a more kind of holistic way of judging our practice? And one thing I like to consider is um, looking at whether we see in our lives the development of what are known as the paramis the spiritual perfections, the ten paramis. Have you guys heard of those? Yeah? 
Should I list them anyway? I guess for people maybe who haven't. Let's see, I can, when I try to list them, I usually remember nine, so we'll see if I can get all ten. But um, these are the qualities of generosity, um, moral integrity, renunciation, determination, energy or effort, patience, truthfulness, loving kindness, equanimity, and wisdom. These qualities, these are considered the qualities of a fully enlightened person or being. And these qualities are considered both the fruit of our practice, that when we practice we see that these qualities strengthen, and also these qualities uh, give strength to our practice. So I sometimes like to call them um, the ten spiritual strengths. I like to think of them that way. And that we all in that list of ten, we have ones that are strong for us, right? We have ones that come more naturally. And we can think of those as supports to our practice, that they give strength to our practice. They, they make us strong enough to be able to face life as it is. That's when I, when I say they're strengths, I think of them as um, qualities that make us strong enough to really go deep in practice and be able to open to life as it is. And then we all have ones that like are a little more work for us that aren't so easy or don't come so naturally. So one of those for me is patience. That's why I like to talk about it. That's one on my list of like not so easy. I wasn't born. I didn't come into this world. I think as a patient being and. Um, so I've focused on this quality a lot of my practice. My sister was going to come to this talk tonight, but she had to stay with the kids. And um, I told her, I said, well, I was going to say to people that, that patience isn't one of my natural qualities and that my family of origin would attest to this. And, and I was going to give you a chance to nod. <laughs> my mom said, oh, I'll nod. <laughs> but my sister's not here, but my mom is. <laughs> Well, it's great to teach what we need to learn because um, it helps reinforce it. So we get that added benefit. Now, patience, as I said, is a, a challenging, um, or can be a challenging quality for me, but it's also one that's not exactly worshipped in our culture. So it's not like culturally I get a lot of help with that one. Our culture more or less worships um, impatience. That impatience is considered actually like a good quality. I, I heard on um, a, a commercial on TV a number of years ago, it said, at FBC, some company, at FBC, impatience is a virtue. And um, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the attitude <laughs> in this country, that impatience is good because it gets a lot of things done or it's efficient or something. I'm not really sure. So we don't get a lot of help culturally in developing patience. But I think it's one of the deepest spiritual qualities, which I'll explain further in the talk why I think so, and worth giving a little attention to. So the Pali word for patience is kanti, and it's sometimes translated as forbearance or tolerance. But I think we have to be careful with those 
translations because that kind of has a, a ridding of the teeth quality to it, like tolerate something. And um, that isn't the true flavor of patience. There's also the idea of constancy, of being able to wait, to wait without expectation, or the ability to be with unpleasant experience. That's another way we can describe patience. What I like to think of patience as having the flavor of um, acceptance or poise. I heard poise as a, as a translation was acceptance and poise and gracefulness. And I think if you think of patience as waiting, if there's any quality of waiting, it's not real patience. It's not the great patience. The great patience is actually being able to relax with things exactly as they are. A number of years ago, I went to a precept ceremony that Thich Nhat Hanh was having. Thich Nhat Hanh, when he does his retreats often at the end, will have a precept ceremony, and I wanted to go to this one. And it started at 6.30 in the morning. It was like two hours from my house, so I got up as late as I could, around 4, and jumped in my car and drove and, you know, got there a few minutes before the ceremony. And I got out of my car and I'm rushing over to the tent for the ceremony. And then I see Thich Nhat Hanh walking towards the tent. And I was stopped dead in my tracks. It was like, because the way he walked, you could say it was completely patient in that there was no leaning into the next step. It was like each step was a complete universe of its own. And there was no other world beyond that step that he was taking. So I just, I watched him walk, and that was actually my biggest teaching of that day. There was something, I haven't forgotten, like how he walked, and that quality, I've never seen it manifest so perfectly, that quality of complete patience, or being completely in the moment. And that's that's how I think of patience. There's not any leaning or waiting or anything, but that ability to be right in the moment as it is. So I thought when I, to talk about um, patients, I'd look at a couple of different uh, areas. First kind of patients with um, daily life challenges, then patients with other people, and then patients with our practice in general. And I might not get to all of that because it could be a while, right? It could take a while. Um, and then we're also going to have to talk about impatience because Basically, you can't talk about developing patience if, if um, you don't explore impatience, the opposite. <coughs> I thought, what if I come tonight? I have so much I want to say. What if I rush through my talk on patience? <laughs> 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 I wouldn't bring exactly a good uh, <laughs> example. <laughs> I think my first uh, 
The first time I remember really thinking about patience and trying to understand it was when I was 22. So it was actually before I started meditating. And I went to Nicaragua to live for a year and work after my after I graduated from college. And this was my first time like living in the third world. And um, I found that things didn't move at a speed that I was accustomed to. Things moved much, much slower. And since, as I said, by nature, I'm, I'm an impatient person, or I have been an impatient person, this was a great challenge for me. And I was a resident. I had a resident visa there. So if I wanted to leave the country, I had to get an exit visa. And to get an exit visa took about 10 office visits because you had to go pick up a form and return, and then you had to get a police form and get it filled out and pick it up again, and a tax form and a stamp. And, and you, so each of these visits took like a few hours. It wasn't unusual by the time you got a bus, which was hard to do, and then waited in a line. And, and so any time I wanted to leave the country, I had to get an exit visa into these 10 visits. And I realized pretty early on that if I stuck to my ideas about how fast things should work, that I was going to be in big trouble. So I decided to just practice in all of these lines instead of um, thinking about getting the job done to practice just being there. So on the bus, just to be there, and the lines, just to be there. And it was fantastic. It's like I looked around, and it was like I was connected. I got to see the people and um, all the life going on around me. It was such a great teaching and patience. And then when I come back to the United States, I remember I came back to Miami, and I got off the plane, and with um, within, oh, I couldn't have been more than 15 minutes, I'd gotten through, um, gotten through immigration, got in my bag, got in on my next flight, all checked in and everything, and I remember just going, <laughs> what? <laughs> this is too strange. Um, so it's hard for us Westerners. We have this um, expectation about efficiency and speed and this belief that that is good. So given that we have this um, fixation in this country, how do we develop patience? What can help us do that? Anytime there's a minor irritation in our life, that can be a great chance to practice patience. I've recently been doing 10-minute patience practice periods. I am I'm teaching a class on paramis at my center, and uh, last week we did patience as our parmi for the month and one of the things that I suggested people could practice is ten. you take 10 minutes and you practice patience during those 10 minutes. And like this is really good when the situations are difficult, right? I've had a number of chances since last Thursday night to do this. <laughs> like today when the bags didn't come, they didn't come on the right carousel so we're waiting and waiting for the bags and they're not coming, they're not coming. So I go check with the woman. She says, you have to wait a half hour before I can do anything. So that was like 20 minutes. The bag still hadn't come. And I watched myself as you like, I'll just go ask her again. And it's like, oh, no, patience practice, period. <sighs> and then I'd be fine for a little while. And I was like, I really want to know where my bag is. <laughs> and 
Ah, patience, practice, period. It's fascinating to watch how the mind does that, right? It's like it leans. It's like, oh, this isn't okay. I want it different. Again, just relaxing. Another patience practice for me is um, I live on this country road, six and a half miles up from a town, and it's double yellow lines on the whole road, all six and a half miles. So if you get behind a slow car, you're stuck. You can't, you can't get out. <laughs> and um, so I call that my patience practice is not tailgating people. So um, you know, if I find myself inching up on people, then it'll be like. Okay, patience, back off. And then what's really interesting about this, and I think this might be true for a lot of us, some of you guys, patience might not be a big deal, it might be easy. But I think that when we get impatient, what happens is we start having really irrational thoughts that we don't recognize, and we don't really actually know what's going on inside of ourselves. So I started to investigate with like the tailgating. I started to investigate so first of all, I had to get myself not to tailgate, right? It's not very nice to start out with, but also, it's, you know, it's just not right. So I would get myself to um, get back away. So then I find that, you know, wanting to go faster. And then, you know, I finally get myself to sit back and find out, like, what is going on here? And I started to look at the thoughts that were going through my head. I'm like, what? You know? And I started to realize I had these really bizarre thoughts, like, you're in my way. It's like, what? What's that about? You know, so I started to really investigate. And then I found like I had like memories from my childhood and all kinds of strange things happening. But once I started to kind of listen and let that unravel and just pay attention to it, be mindful of it, and I started to really see how irrational it was, then it was like, oh, okay, I don't need to be controlled by this unconscious stuff going on. And it's easier now. It's just easier. Somebody's driving slow. Okay, well, we get to look at the scenery a little bit more and just take our time. So being mindful of impatience is part of this practice, right? And um, really trying to see what goes on when we start getting that edge of impatience. A little story from somebody named Andre G.I.D. I don't know how you say that last name. Gide? Gide. Gide. Ah, Andre Gide. My party had been pushing ahead at a fast pace for a number of days, and one morning, when we were mostly, um, when we were ready to set out, our native bearers who carried the food and equipment were found sitting around without any preparation made for starting the day. Upon being questioned, they said, quite simply, that they had been traveling too fast in the last days and that they had gotten ahead of their souls and they were going to stay quietly in camp for the day in order for their souls to catch up with them. So they came to a complete stop. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
it's almost like what we need to do, right? It's like sometimes when we go on retreat, it's like I know soul isn't a Buddhist word, but we have to we have to get we have to reclaim like the part of us that we lose when we're so fixated on fast speed. I am. Um, came back from, I was in Burma in most of January, and I came back about 10 days ago. And um, the same thing happens to me that happens to them. It's like I come fly all the way back from Burma, and it takes me a few days, like, for, like, me to catch up, like, to where I'm at. It's so fast, the way we can travel these days. So, like, that, oh, catching up to where we're at. So if we're going to develop patience, we have to really understand impatience. And what is impatience, really? Just thinking about it. What is it? It's like a resistance to the present moment. So it's really often a form of grasping or aversion, right? Which the Buddha talked about as core ways of suffering. So we don't like how things are now and we want it to go faster or we want something different or there's some resistance when we're impatient. And there's also, I've been thinking about it, there's also some denial about the way things are. Because if you look very closely at the nature of reality, which is partly what we do as Buddhists, you understand that this world um, changes a lot and changes all the time. And that also it doesn't really uh, manifest according to our wishes. Well, sometimes we're lucky it does, but that it doesn't um, necessarily do that. So patience is accepting that, knowing this, flowing with the way life is, not trying to go against the current of life. The Buddha said that the proximate cause of, of patience is seeing things as they are. So in Buddhism, the proximate cause is, is the condition that will lead to that quality developing. So seeing things as they are is said to lead to patience. And the characteristic of patience is said to be acceptance. related to equanimity, to not resisting the way things are. So that's one of the reasons I think that patience is one of the deepest spiritual qualities is because we're aligning ourselves in accordance with reality and the way things are.
So we we may uh, find that we're impatient or struggle with patience and daily life challenges and what comes up in our way. Um, but we can also often manifest impatience in our in our spiritual practice. As um, Marianne, I think that's her name, uh, mentioned, I teach at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Mass. And um, it, I, most of you have probably heard of it. Um, one of the, the first big Vipassana center in the country. And um, years ago, uh, I was on staff, and I heard that in the early days, somebody had written a letter to uh, not the Insight Meditation Society, but the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> And uh, I think that's how we look at practice sometimes, you know. It's like we want instant meditation. We want it to happen really fast. And I certainly hope that person didn't go to IMS because I'm afraid they may have been disappointed. Most of you who have meditated for a while know that um, instant meditation isn't uh, usually what we get, that the, the job of self-transformation takes a, a long time. It takes um, a lot of patience and rarely happens instantly. So part of um, patience practice is learning to have patience with the whole process of transformation within ourselves. So it means being steady in our practice through the times that feel blissful and like we're learning a lot and then through the times that might be dry or dull or boring. It's said that the Buddha spent a long time developing these paramis. So long, it's said that he spent four incalculable ages and 100,000 eons developing these qualities. So we have a little bit of a role model for patients there. For incalculable ages, and for those of you who don't know what an incalculable age is, it's the amount of time if you have a mountain a mile high and a bird flies over every hundred years with a silk handkerchief, and on the top of the mountain, it's how long that would take the mountain to erode. If you think about that, that's, um, that's rather incalculable. incalculable. <laughs> long time. So impatience with ourselves in practice accepts some, it, it manifests some kind of um, lack of appreciation for who we are. Like there's something deficient. Impatience in practice is really an appreciation of ourselves just as we are. One of my favorite um, poets, Japanese um, poet Ryokan, the hermit poet, he manifests this quality very beautifully, he says. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. <laughs> this year, no change. Exclamation <laughs> I love that poem. There's just such a, a deep... Um, acceptance of who he is. 
and the patience with the patience with this practice, you can really feel it. Um, that's what I'm aiming for: is that kind of uh, um, relaxation. <laughs> Most of us in the West here, especially, try too hard, and so we can learn something by um, emphasizing patience and relaxation. I think a good balance is um, reflected in a, in a quote that I love by Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master. He said he was talking to a group of students, and uh, he said, "You're all perfect just as you are, and you have some work to do." <laughs> to me, that's like a perfect balance. You know, the perfect just as you are is that deep um, acceptance and appreciation of how this being is manifesting in the universe at this moment, right? And then some work to do is, okay, that's realistic, you know, that most of us um, have places we can grow. Um, So patience is like that relaxing into the truth of how things are right now and know that that's enough, it's perfect just as it is. But as we hold, also the wider vision that we that we're here because we have, we do have work to do, and so if we find ourselves frustrated with our practice. We may need to. Um, it may be suggesting that we need to strengthen this quality of patience and shift into a more receptive mode. There's a book by um, Jack Cornfield called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And basically he talked to a bunch of uh, teachers and um, senior students who've had deep experiences in their practice and just wanted to see, well, what, what, is, what does that mean? And one senior lama said to him, perfection must be around here somewhere. Where is it? Is it the next experience or the one after that? My true practice is patience, not wanting anything special or unusual to happen. As soon as I see striving and expecting, I know I've lost the great perfection. The hardest thing I still have to pass through is the realization that there is no final perfect condition to rely on. It is all fundamentally insecure, changing. You don't learn this quickly. You have to let go into this ordinary perfection again and again. My true practice is patience. Dalai Lama um, 
said on one occasion, he said, you Westerners, you always want to know the fastest way, the quickest way. He said, the way I look at it, perhaps a little change every decade is enough. Another uh, manifestation of impatience that we may notice in our practice is uh, wanting something exciting to happen or wanting kind of the next sense hit with practice. And so part of patience in practice might be the willingness to be bored. Trungpa Rinpoche, the, the Tibetan master, said practice is boring, boring, boring. So we have to be willing to be bored also on our way. You know, we're stimulation junkies. We want it to always be kind of uh, exciting or, or new. And it's like maybe it's boring sometimes. I heard there's this... Um, cable show on uh, British television that's called Watching Paint Dry. <laughs> and basically, apparently, every 24 hours they'll paint this wall, and then the camera will be on it, and you can watch it dry. <laughs> I really like that. There's something about that that just really catches me. Um, first of all, it would be quite a patience practice, <laughs> but also... Um, <laughs> Maybe that's what practice is like sometimes. <laughs> it's like washing paint dry. It's slow. <laughs> I actually think it's good to get bored in practice. It's like it's good to get bored of the stories in our minds. Bored of um, some of the deep patterns of conditioning. It's a good sign actually. I was reading a story in Shambhala Sun um, by Leonard Cohen, the singer. Most of you probably heard of him. And uh, apparently he was in a Zen monastery for a number of years. And he said that um, he said that uh, he discovered what he's looking for. He said, what happens in meditations that last 10, 15 hours is that you run through your top 10 erotic fantasies, ambition fantasies, revenge fantasies, global ratification fantasies. You run through them all until you bore yourself to death, basically. And the faculty that produces opinions and uh, snap judgments and unrealistic scenarios for your own prominence, after you run through them a number of years, they cease to have charge. They bore themselves into non-existence. You see them as diversions from another kind of intimacy that you become more interested in. I think that's great. I like that that you bore that that um, in some ways we have to watch like the what our minds do. We sit down and we watch what our minds do and and after we do it long enough, uh, it starts to become a little bit boring. And then um, there's some potential to try a different kind of intimacy. But sometimes that takes a lot of years takes a long time. So patience, when we think of patience and practice, 
when we think about some of our deeply conditioned patterns of mind, we have to have so much patience. I think the last time I was here, I think it was a year and a half ago, I mentioned that I'd worked a lot with fear in my practice. And I'd say that it took a good decade before I felt like I had a kind of basic grip on how to work with fear. And it's not like I'm saying, like, you know, there's no, um, we don't learn something before that. But, like, with the deeply conditioned patterns, the ones that are most challenging for us, I'd say at least a decade. Give yourself at least a decade to to have uh, expect any kind of stabilization. It's not that saying that you won't have any success working with it before then and understanding it, but to stabilize um, some of the changes for the deep patterns, it takes a long time. And I don't mean that to be depressing. I hope I'm not depressing you. But it's more like most people, when I say that, they're like, oh, thank God. I thought there was something wrong with me. You know, I'm still, I've been practicing a long time, and I still get hooked by anger or fear. Those are the ones that we hear about most. But we all have our personal favorites. Um, I still get hooked by impatience, you know. You have to have so much patience. Um, in one of Pema Children's books I was reading, I like to read a lot. That's why you guys get a lot of quotes when I come. She says, I read a series of articles about a woman whose main practice was to stop hating political leaders. By day 35, she reported, not doing too good, but still not caving in. That's definitely the bodhisattva spirit. Allow ample time for change to occur so that you don't lose heart just because the process goes slowly. So I like that. Not doing too good, but still not caving in. <laughs> That's how it is sometimes with some of these deeply conditioned patterns. We have to really um, stick at it, not, not uh, caving in um, and uh, understanding that it takes a long time. <coughs> The Buddha described patience as the highest devotion. I was thinking about this. Devotion to me implies some kind of faith. Faith in the teachings, perhaps. Or perhaps just faith in ourselves and our process. So in some ways, this trusting aspect of patience manifests as humility, not assuming that our plan for the universe is the way it's supposed to be. And when I look back over the 25 years that I've been doing this practice, I know there are a lot of times when I felt like the pra- that somehow it all ought to be going a little bit faster. I should... Um, work through things a little bit quick, more quickly. But then when I look back, I see that it all has happened and keeps happening just perfectly. It's like when we see this, our, our faith in the, in the practice gets um, deeper. And, and there's a certain humility there that develops then in, um, 
letting go of our impatience and our plan for how things are supposed to be going, we think, and relaxing into the great patience of things just as they are. One analogy I saw was trying to hurry our practices like picking an apple before it's ripe. It doesn't taste sweet. So we have to let it ripen up in its own time. So ultimately, I see patience as relaxing into what is. So it's the freedom of not leaning into the next moment but being fully with this one. And it it brings a, a, a deep acceptance and a kind of vast contentment when we can be patient. It's a very beautiful quality. And one that I think gets at the heart of the Buddhist teachings of being able to, as it is, So I'll share one last story with you, and then we can have a few moments or a little time for questions and discussion, if there is any. So in my interest in patience, I read a book called um, by somebody named Carl Honore, and the name, I can't remember the exact title of the book, but it was about the slow movement. Have you guys heard of the slow movement? It's um, like slow food, and it's basically uh, a response to the speed and impatience of our cultures, and it's it's actually got quite a following uh, more in Europe, I think, than America, but we'll see what happens with that. So this is a um, a story from that book. So I'm going to have to start bringing my reading glasses when I give talks. (laughs) I'm almost there, right on the edge. Another marathonic musical event is underway in Halberstadt, a small German town famous for its ancient organs. The local St. Bertardi Church, a 12th century pile that was sacked by Napoleon, is the venue for a concert that will end in the year 2640, sponsors permitting. The featured work was written in 1992 by John Cage, the avant-garde American composer. Its title, appropriately enough, is ASLSP, or As Slow as Possible. How long the piece should last has long been a, a bone of contention among the cognoscenti. Some thought 20 minutes enough. Had, uh, hardliners insisted on nothing short of infinity. After consulting a panel of musicologists, composers, organists, theologians, and philosophers, Halberstadt settled on 639 years. The exact time that it passed since the creation of the church's renowned blackboard organ. To do justice to Cage's piece, the organizers built an organ that will last for centuries. Weights attached to the keyboard hold down the notes long after the organist has left. (laughs) The ASLSP recital began in September 2001 with a pause that lasted 17 months. During that time, the only sound was 
of the organ bellows and plating. In February 2003, an organist played the first three notes, which will reverberate throughout the church until the summer of 2004, when the next two notes will be played. The notion of concert so slow that the no one who attends opening night will hear the final uh, note clearly strikes a chord with the public. Hundreds of spectators descend on Halbert's bed each time an organist comes to play the next set of notes. During the long months in between, visitors flock to soak up the residual sounds echoing around the church. So there's something about that story that reminds me of patience, definitely, and of practice. That that um, ability, as slow as, as slow as possible, that ability to stick with it for 639 years. That's a true story, apparently. So. You guys can head over to Germany and check it out if you need some exploration. <coughs> Let's just sit for a minute and then we'll have time for questions. there any thoughts or questions or comments or either about the subject or something else yet? Uh, I, I too have lived in a culture that was different than the Western way that I recalibrate to school myself now. So I understand what you're saying about this. Um, my question is in regards to anxiety mm-hmm. because I find that um, as I heard you talk a lot of situations that are pre-anxiety may stem from patients. Yes. And that uh, um, Dr. Claire Weeks wrote a book on health and open your nerves. And one of the key things in that is that allowance, allowing it to be there, observing, yeah. surrender, acceptance, and, and that's the way it is. So I see a close tie and connection between impatience and I agree with you. I think that, um, well, when I was talking about the tailgating thing, I mean, basically, I was, I was real, it, it was a lot of anxiety is what really was happening when I would, when I would drop back. And like I said, it's not rational, but um, it's very related, I think, in patients' anxiety. Just the other day, after the day after I had done my class on um, on patients, I was in a store and um, I was buying uh, 
something for my partner for Valentine's Day, and the person was wrapping it up really nicely. And I noticed I was kind of, I was anxious. I was like, there was this leaning kind of, like, I was like, and then I thought, oh, what's happening here? It's like I wanted her to finish it quickly, but I'm like, oh, patience practice period. So the first thing I did was drop my shoulders, <laughs> sat back a little bit, and I'm like, what's going on here, you know? And I was just like, just like kind of almost free-floating anxiety in a lot of ways. And I was just like, oh. But then when I could notice that and make it a patient's practice period, I got totally relaxed. And I was like, oh, there's no problem. I think a lot of anxiety in our social culture comes to actually see the problem really was the problem started before that. The problem was I was late. You know? And so for me, I noticed that one way that really supports me being patient is to leave the house earlier. So I'm one of those people, and I bet a bunch of you are too, it's like, oh, I'll just answer one more email, right? And then, um, and then I'm late, and then I have no tolerance for patience, but it's also, I, there's a certain anxiety that comes with that kind of um, scheduling oneself like that. So, you know, I get better, I've gotten better and better at leaving the house early, and then, then it's like there's not some, there's, the anxiety's not there. It's like, oh, there's, you know, so it's like looking too at how we, schedule ourselves and um, uh, the stimulation, all of it. But, yeah, I think it's definitely related. Are we impatient because we're anxious or are we anxious because we're impatient? <laughs> but that's what we get to explore. And it's it's... I, I find there's a lot of um, there's a lot of juiciness in there as far as like seeing the conditioning that's happening and really when we talk about Buddhism we talk a lot about the conditioning of our minds how they've been tracked to think and so we start to really allow the conditioning to show itself to us and um, it's like a knot that we start teasing the different strands out of it, and then eventually we see that the knot starts to loosen. But for me, it comes from having a real interest rather than a judgment when these things happen. So I'm impatient with a woman at the counter, and it's like I can, be, I can judge myself for that, and I have, or I can just be like, oh, wow, what's going on here? So, so like shifting for ourselves as much as we can from judging when we find ourselves anxious or impatient or whatever, to like, oh, this is interesting. What's going on here? And then it's like, yeah, you start teasing out the little corner. And sometimes it's just crazy. It's, it's conditioning that doesn't serve us anymore. But if we don't know what it is, if it's, if it's so automatic that we don't even see it, it just keeps operating. <laughs> or that's yeah, that's the other answer, right? <laughs> well, sometimes medication is supportive. I mean, I definitely think that for some people, sometimes there's a place for, it. Um, especially if it gives us a fighting chance to be interested in what's happening. And uh, yeah. I was wondering uh, which would be the carbides that would be kind of the 
to, to match the yin. Yeah. Because I know, for example, plants are, are very patient, but they also are extending themselves toward the light. You know? Yeah. Our bodies are kind of a combination of relaxation and tension. Yeah. Because without the tension, we just kind of collapse. Yeah. So it maybe maybe determination and energy would be yeah. kind of the other part that kind of gets patients its back forwards kind of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think a lot of times it's it's we we have to look at um, where we need balancing, you know. And people are all going to be different. I know I'm a person who came in with a lot of determination. I can really I, I can have a strongly developed will, and so I I actually need more yin. I need to. You know, I've spent years now trying to develop the yin energy within me. But if somebody has a lot of yin and there's no yang to balance it, then we need to do that. And it's interesting because the class I taught before patients was on um, resolution or determination. And like none of the students were interested in that one. And I thought, I mean, and I thought about it. If I look at the list of the ten, um, Parmes is the one I'm least interested in is determination. But I think there's I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one reason is that it was it was a quality that came in with very strong. But I think we're scared of that quality, a lot of us, because we, we're so um, we're too vicious with it. We're too um, tight with it. And and as a culture, we're very yang. <laughs> and so mostly, as I'm speaking in general generalities, because obviously we're all going to be different, but as a culture we have a lot of yang energy, and so a lot of us need yin, but that's not everybody. Some people need yang, and they need a little bit more um, like a resolution, like developing that muscle of determination, which you can also develop. All these qualities are so beautiful because you can develop them. So you might need to learn to like sit every morning whether you want to or not. That would develop determination, right? To, and it's a good quality. We shouldn't throw it out. That was the thing I said to the closet. Just because we're scared of how we might apply it, we shouldn't throw it out because it's, it's really necessary. And sometimes we can go too far the other way. Like you're saying, we can go too far in relaxation and forget that there's, there's other, an, another flavor that might balance. Yeah. Are we done for the evening? Any other thoughts? Do you want one location story? This is one of my other favorites. This is from a book of Zen, um, Zen stories, 108 Zen stories, edited by Sean Murphy, I believe. In the 60s and 70s, the Chan monk Dei Chun lived in rural Tennessee, where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with a nearby university. When Dei Chun first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak tree in the yard beside his cabin. 
one of his neighbors happened by and said, you better cut that thing down or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said Dave Cho. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. He promptly set to work on the trunks, tree's enormous trunk, chipping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement as his dress. Neighbors, seeing him working day after day, showed up with chainsaws offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, said Dae Chung. I do it my way. This went on for months with such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of Dae Chung on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. It became a phenomenon, a cause for conversation, and before too long, this strange old Chinese fellow had become a member of the neighborhood. On the day that the tree finally fell, with a crash that shook all the houses on his street, one of Jay Chung's friends asked him, So what will you do now? Make firewood, answered Jay Chung. He later said that this was the way he taught his students meditation. He just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. We sit for another few minutes or moments for them. Dei Chung, he later said that this was the way he taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. Thank you for allowing me to spend the evening with you. Well, I just wanted to thank you very much again, Rebecca, for inviting all of you to join us. So, thank you again very much, Rebecca. Much, Rebecca. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.